Son of the Holy Spirit. So Team Grace, for the past several months during this portion of Ordinary Time, we have been walking through a series in order to observe the National Eucharistic Revival. We have walked through the portion of the second part of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. We've also walked through the different parts of the Mass. We were able to get through the introductory rites and the Liturgy of the Word. And of course, now that we conclude this portion of Ordinary Time, we have to pause. We're going to pick these up in mid-January when Ordinary Time resumes. But as we conclude this part of our series, I wanted to conclude with answering some popular questions. Questions I've received over the past couple of years, past couple of months, some of which you reached out during this past week and asked questions. So I want to answer whatever questions I'm able to in the amount that the homily allows me to. So but before we dive into specific questions, however, I think we have to make sure we have some principles in mind. So I want to emphasize a few starting principles. The first is that the sacred liturgy is about God's sovereignty. Did you hear that? The sacred liturgy is about God's sovereignty. That's what worship is about. It's not about us getting together, holding hands, singing kumbaya. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's not about making sure everybody has something to do. It's none of that. Worship, the sacred liturgy, is about God's sovereignty. We come as creatures before God who have been elevated to the status of children of God. And we acknowledge his sovereignty. We are nothing before him. We approach with empty hands. And we have nothing but praise and gratitude to offer him. So worship is acknowledging that God is king and Lord of all. It is about his sovereignty. Anything that distracts or takes away from that purpose needs to be removed, tempered because the purpose of worship is the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Now, our participation in sacred liturgy is a gift. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. We couldn't demand it. We're not entitled to it. It is a gift given to us by God. By our baptism, the Lord Jesus incorporates us into his own body and allows us to share in his own sacrifice. We participate in the ancient tradition of the church whenever we participate in sacred liturgy. The Mass is not the prayer of any one priest or of any one congregation or even of one co any one country. Let me just give you an example of that. Do you know the church's discipline, no national flag is allowed to be near the altars of God? None. Not even the Vatican flag. No national flag is ever to be near the altar because the altar of God is above every nation, above every political party, above every social movement, the mass, sacred worship, does not belong to any one nation, any one people, or any one priest. The mass is the prayer of Jesus Christ, entrusted to his church and carried on through the ages by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are members of the body of Christ. That's how we are able to offer worship. As members of the body of Christ, we are specifically within the Latin church, the Latin rite of the universal church. Many of you might know that within the universal church, there are 24 churches, 24 rites. You might have heard people refer to the Eastern rites. More properly, those are referred to as the Eastern churches. There are 24. They come from different apostles and there are different liturgical and ecclesial traditions. 24 of them throughout the entire church. We are part of the largest, which is the Latin rite or the Latin church. So as members of the Latin rite, we have to preserve the Roman tradition 
of the church. So we have to be cautious and work to preserve the Roman tradition, especially as we have a pseudo-American tradition that wants to eclipse the Roman tradition. We have to be very careful of that. We are Americans, we are products of our culture. As Americans, we want things fast, we want the bottom line, we want things quick, and we, want, and we have to be careful with that. Because we apply that to liturgy, it's disastrous. There are some people who are in such a hurry to get through mass, where are you going? My dad used to joke as a, when I was young, so what, you got a hot date? <laughs> What's going on, right? Slow down, right? The psalmist says, one day in your house is like a thousand elsewhere. Like, some of people, we can do this, we can do that, we can hurry it up, we can go. Why? Why? Let's not. Let's slow it down a little bit and just take a little bit of extra time. This is a place of peace, a place of prayer. This is in the, we are in the presence of God. That's just one example of many. We have to be careful of this pseudo-American tradition that, again, wants to eclipse worship, eclipse our ancient Roman tradition. Now, admittedly, the church allows for some options, which I'll give examples of later. But such options should always be used within an awareness of the broader liturgical tradition and the desire to preserve the Roman tradition. So the concessions that the church gives are great. So the church will allow concessions or adjustments or abbreviations to the mass and the liturgy and so on. In and of themselves, they're good. They can be very helpful. In fact, I appreciate them, especially when I celebrate mass at a prison or a nursing home. I can adjust the mass. I'm grateful for the permissions to do that. But a priest has to be careful that he doesn't use every adjustment and every condition during Sunday Mass within a, within a parish. In fact, the priest can go to the lowest common denominator of every possible permission, and eventually the Mass no longer looks like the Mass of the Roman Rite. In fact, the Mass can begin to look almost like a Protestant service, which is why so many Catholics even now refer to the Mass as a service, because they can't tell the difference because the richness, the beauty, and the depth of the Roman Rite have been stripped. And it looks almost like a Protestant service, the average Catholic not being able to distinguish between the two. Please have to be careful of that. You cannot use every possible concession and adjustment and go always to the lowest common denominator. The Roman tradition needs to be preserved. And you, the people of God, you deserve to see the beauty of the Roman Rite shine forth in every Mass. You come from a week of fighting for the good news, a week of fighting for moral truth and goodness. You come to the house of God, bruised, broken, a little bit beaten up, and you come to the altar of God in order to be nourished by his grace. You come here and you deserve, as the people of God, to be enriched, to be lifted up, to see beauty, and to allow the, the, the sacred liturgy to inspire you. And for a priest to give you nothing but banality and boredom and ugliness, is a great disservice to you. It might be fast and you might like it, but at the end of the day, it's not helping you. And it's not raising up your souls. And it's not lifting you to divine things. Priests have to be very careful. We, the people of God, have to be very careful. At every Mass, you should be able to see the beauty and the richness of the Roman Rite. So with these principles in mind, let's go over a few major questions that have come up. First, I'm periodically asked, why do we celebrate Mass facing the tabernacle here at Our Lady of Grace? All right, so first I have to tell you, I cleaned up the question, huh? <laughs> this is what people usually ask me. Why do you have your back to us as you're celebrating Mass, right? Why does a priest have his back to us, right? And that question alone indicates a part of the problem. Why are you focused on the priest? 
Why does the priest have his back to us? I changed the question. Why do we celebrate Mass facing the tabernacle? If your focus is the priest, we have a problem. You see, a lot of my brother priests have allowed themselves to become Bob Barker, huh? They're, they're game show hosts. They're up here. They're wheeling. They're entertainers. And hey, everybody. I, they become clowns. Entertainers. So much so that we can look at some masses and wonder, is God being worshipped or is this priest being worshipped? Has he forgotten his priestly vocation, the disciplines imposed upon his priesthood? My responsibility, my spirituality as a priest is to die to myself, remove myself so that you can encounter God. So you can experience God during worship. If I make myself the center of attention, then I have usurped, I have eclipsed God. And you have nothing but this priest, bruised and broken, you deserve much better. The priest has to be careful, remove himself. One of the ways that that can be done is by ad orientem. The entire focus of the worship is on God. And the priest fades away. Rather than the priest being the one who, again, is almost the entertainer, almost as if he himself is the host of some talk show or game show. And that is not the sacred liturgy. This particular way of celebrating Mass is called ad orientem. That's Latin. It means to the east. And the reason why it was uh, very common and why it's called to the east is because we understand from the scriptures that the Lord, when he returns, will come from the east. So whenever Christians assembled for worship, especially the Eucharistic sacrifice, we were facing the east. Even if it's not the actual practical east, it's symbolically the east because we're waiting for the Lord to return. This is why our early fathers loved the celebration of Mass ad Orientem. It showed the eagerness, the longing of the people of God for the return of the Lord Jesus. It kept our focus in the midst of a fallen world on the fact that we are waiting with joyful hope for the Lord to return. Ad Orientum is observed by all 24 liturgical traditions in the universal church, with no exception except in the Latin rite in which the Mass can be celebrated facing the people, and that only within the last 50 years. And the other churches of the universal church look at the Latin rite and say, what have you done now? The Latin rite is seen as the older brother who never follows the rules. <laughs> what are you doing, the Eastern churches ask. Let's look at our longer tradition. If we were to go to Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism of our Lord, as well as his contemporary rabbinic expression, we, were to, we, are to, we can see that all the prayers are offered facing the tabernacle, which is called the Ark, which is where the Torah rests. The prayers of rabbi and people are directed to God. So even in our broader tradition, we can see that the prayers were always offered in the direction of God. Now, in the reform of the Second Vatican Council, some of you might have been told that the council fathers wanted priests to face the people. That's a lie. In fact, you are adult Christians. You can go to the dogmatic constitution on sacred liturgy, and you can read exactly what the council fathers asked for. But let me warn you, you're going to be shocked at what the council fathers asked for and which has yet to be done and what the council fathers did not ask for, and you have been lied to that they did in fact ask for it, such as facing the people for mass. Council fathers never asked for that. They could not have envisioned that, that the priest would turn and face the people for mass. Now, as a part of the reform of Vatican II, the Roman Missal was revised. 
Some of you might know that the Roman Missal is the normative guide for how I am to celebrate the Mass. I am a servant. This is not my Mass. I celebrate the Mass according to the Latin rite of the Universal Church. So I have to follow the Roman Missal. That's the red book you see. Go ahead, Zach, why don't you hold up the Roman Missal for the people. That's it. That tells me what to do, what to pray. I can't do anything outside of that. Again, I'm a servant. That is the guide. What does the Roman Missal tell the priest of the Latin rite for the celebration of Mass? At certain specific moments, the Roman Missal instructs the priest to, quote, turn and face the people, such as during the Agnus Dei. But wait a minute. If the priest is always already facing the people, why is he being instructed to turn and face the people? Unless the Roman Missal of the Second Vatican Council is assuming that the priest is facing the tabernacle. So we can see even within the Missal, there is the implication that the tradition of facing the tabernacle was never intended to be changed. So you might ask, well, how did that happen? Well, actually, it is a long and complicated history. Let me give you just some highlights. First, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, where the Holy Father celebrates Mass, it's backwards. The church was built backwards because we had the bones of St. Peter in the Vatican Hill. So they had to face it where east was actually the opposite direction. So one architect actually suggested to the early popes, could we just move the bones of Peter? And the Holy Father said, no, 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 no. The church moves for Peter. Peter doesn't move for the church, right? So no, the bones will stay. So he had to move half a mountain, half a hill, and then he had to build the basilica in the wrong direction. Which is why from early times, the Holy Father always celebrated Mass facing the people, which at St. Peter's meant he was facing, me, facing east, which means he was facing the people. That's always been the privilege of St. Peter's Basilica. And again, it was so that the Holy Father could face east because of the bones of St. Peter. So in the Reform, we see the Missal was done well, priests weren't given any instruction, shocking, to those Catholics who were alive during this time. You saw this. You just come to Mass every week. It seemed like things were changing, and there was no explanation, no instruction. And that wasn't just to you. That was also to the priest. So priests started watching TV, and they would see Pope Paul VI celebrating Mass facing the people. So they thought, oh, well, I guess that's how we're supposed to do it now. And they started celebrating Mass facing the people. And if that sounds ridiculous, it's almost, as that, it's almost that ridiculous. That it was honestly mass media that allowed priests to begin to look and say, oh, I guess that's how we're supposed to do Everything's changing. I guess this is what we're supposed to do now. And so priests began to celebrate mass facing the people. Now, there's a longer history there, but that helps us with a little bit. And, of course, we can see from Vatican II itself, as well as the Roman Missal, that it was never the intention that the orientation of the priest for the mass would change. In spite of this history, however, we, are, we now have two options in the Latin Rite for the celebration of Mass, facing the people or facing the tabernacle. And the choice is left up to the celebrant. Now, some people say, oh, no, 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 Pope Francis would never be for this. Actually, Pope Francis has celebrated the Mass at Orientum. In fact, in the past, people have emailed me. I've sent them pictures of the Holy Father celebrating Mass at Orientum. And I'm happy to do so if anyone else would like to email me. Now, admittedly, I don't think it's the preferred choice of Pope Francis, but the fact that he's done it just indicates that this is an option given within the Latin Rite. And why do we do it here at Our Lady of Grace? Teen Grace, we have forgotten the Mass. If you were to ask the average Catholic 
What happens at Mass? Where are we spiritually during the Mass? The vast majority would say, well, we're in the upper room. And the vast majority would be wrong. Look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Mass is the representation of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the altar during Mass, we're at Calvary. We're not in the upper room. And we have forgotten that. Ad Orientem allows us to understand the sacrificial nature of the Mass. We can almost imagine ourselves there at Calvary as if this were a little mountain. And in fact, we can imagine that because we are truly at Calvary. It also puts the priest in his place. The priest is to be a mediator between the people of God and God, God to his people. He is not to be the host of some game show and should never be the center of attention. So for those reasons here at Our Lady of Grace, we celebrate Mass at Orientum. Here's another question we sometimes get. Why, do, why don't we offer the precious blood during the Mass here at Our Lady of Grace? Again, I've cleaned up the question. Let me help you, friends. Not here, not ever, and in over 2,000 years, have we ever distributed wine at a Catholic Mass. Nor have we ever given bread at a Catholic Mass. So if you ask me, why don't you give out the wine? You just indicate to me that we have bigger things to address before we can talk about whether or not the chalice is going to be offered. Because we do not distribute wine. On occasion, we are permitted to distribute the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We do not distribute mere bread. We distribute the body of our Lord, the sacred host. Now, sometimes I say this and people say, oh, you know what I mean, Father. No, I don't know what you mean. Because I don't call a horse a dog or a dog a cat. They're different entities. I call them by their proper names. I call wine, wine. I call the precious blood, the precious blood. You see, 70% of our own do not believe in the real presence. And sometimes their language reflects that disbelief. We have to mean what we say and say what we mean. Could you imagine if you walked up to your loved one and said, I really hate you. What? I really hate you. What are you talking about? No, I'm just kidding. You know what I mean. No, I don't, right? We say what we mean. We mean what we say. Words are important. So we distribute the precious blood on occasion within the Latin rite. So the clarification of that question, let's ask, why do we not distribute the precious blood or offer the precious blood here at Our Lady of Grace? Well, first, let's go to a very important principle in theology called concomitance. Concomitance means that when you receive one species, you receive the full Christ. So if you receive just the sacred host, you receive the body and blood of Christ. If you receive just the precious blood, you receive the body and blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus is not up in heaven saying, I got my blood over here, my body over here, and I'm only going to give you one or the other. No. When you receive one species of Holy Communion, you receive the full Christ. So concomitance. So when you receive the sacred host, you are receiving the body and blood of Christ. And we can see that early on in the church, it became more and more common that the precious blood would not be offered to the entire congregation. In fact, if we look at Acts of the Apostles, we can see the reference to the breaking of the bread, capital B, bread, as in bread of the angels. And we don't hear about the breaking of the chalice. So already in the early church, we begin to see that the chalice itself, the precious blood, is being more and more reserved to the one who is celebrating the Mass. And we suspect this happened in order to avoid spillage and profanation. St. Paul describes for us that some during the Eucharistic sacrifice would even be get, would get intoxicated. 
So more and more in the early church, the precious blood was being reserved to the bishop or to the priest who was celebrating. And the congregation, the people would be offered the host itself. Now with that understanding, let me say that that continued through our tradition in the Latin Rite. And Vatican II never called for a change to that. Vatican II never said, oh, start offering the precious blood to the people. Vatican II didn't call for that. Again, you can read the dogmatic constitution on the sacred liturgy and see what the council fathers asked for. They never called for widespread restoration of the precious blood to the people of God. What did the Roman Missal do? The new revised Roman Missal allowed for the precious blood to be offered to the people of God on five major holidays. Christmas, Holy Thursday, Corpus Christi, and so on. And on certain high feast days in a person's life, such as the nuptial mass. The reason why we don't do that here at our precious blood, excuse me, the reason why we don't do that here at Our Lady of Grace is because someone decided to put carpet in our church when they built it. No sane person puts carpet in a Catholic church. So because we have carpet, if one drop of the precious blood, by the way, one drop of the precious blood redeems humanity. If one drop hits the carpet, we have to pull up the carpet. You know, I've been to parishes that distribute the precious blood and have carpeting, and I've seen stains at the communion stations. I've had to just block my mental thinking because I could not imagine that that was actually precious blood that had spilled and was just left there. But in a lot of parishes, that's just acceptable. Oh, you know, some precious blood, some wine spilled, you know, and it's just left there. Right? Here at Our Lady of Grace, because we have carpet, I'm not going to offer the precious blood. I am not going to provide even the possibility that there might be spillage of the precious blood. Someone might say, well, why don't you just pull up the carpet? Oh, trust me, I looked at it, <laughs> pulling up the whole carpet. But when they set up our carpet, it's a part of our sound system. It's our, the absorption of sound. Remember, we had to spend all that money to put these sound boards in? I hope they fired the sound engineer because he did a really less than excellent job, right? So in addition to these sound boards and the carpet, that's what absorbs our sound. We can't pull the carpet. So for these practical reasons, we're not going to offer the precious blood on those high holy days here at Our Lady of Grace. But what was the Roman, excuse me, the American response? The American response was, hey, Rome's going to allow the precious blood for a couple holy days. Let's do it every day. Let's even do it at daily mass. And then you have some priests who say, yeah, we'll do that. That'll get more people involved. Like, wait a minute. First of all, worship isn't about getting people involved. And secondly, simply because Rome was allowed in the Latin rite for the precious blood to be given on a few high holy days doesn't mean it should be every day. So again, the American response is just this exaggeration. We take a, 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 a very limited permission. We just blow it up. So this is why in many of our sister parishes, you see the precious blood being given. Here at Our Lady of Grace, for the reasons I've just summarized, we will not be offering the precious blood. And through the principle of concomitance, we have the assurance that we are receiving the full Christ. Some might hear that and say, well, wait a minute, why can't we just dip the host in the precious blood? That's actually called intinction, and that's actually very common in the Eastern churches, in the other rites of the universal church. It has never been a tradition in the Latin rite. Now, it is permitted on very high feast days or momentous occasions. So, for example, you might see us do intinction during First Holy Communion. I also do intinction for nuptial masses. But it should be rare. It's not permitted on a general basis in the Latin rite. So that's not within our tradition. Rome does not permit it. Here's another question we sometimes get. Why don't we have more extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion here at Our Lady of Grace? Well, again, I had to clean up the question. Because what I oftentimes get is, why don't we have more Eucharistic ministers? Okay, let me help you, Team Grace. 
There's only one Eucharistic minister in this parish, and that's me. Because the Eucharistic minister is the one that the Holy Spirit uses in order to confect the Eucharist. The term Eucharistic minister was broadly given to the laity by liberal theologians in order to diminish the sacred authority of the priest and also to attack the theology of the Eucharist. It's become very widespread and we still hear, I'm a Eucharistic minister. No, you're not. You say that, you just show, show me you're not ready for that ministry. We've got to, do on, we've got to work on other things. This is only one Eucharistic minister in this parish. What's the proper name? Extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Not the Eucharist, Holy Communion. The reason why we have extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion is because I don't have four arms and I can't bilocate. That's it. It's a very functional service. Extraordinary. What are some synonyms of extraordinary? Hmm. Peculiar, odd, out of the ordinary, and so on, right? Let me give you an example. If a baptized Christian wants to become Catholic, to enter the fullness of the church, and they need to receive confirmation, I call down to the bishop's office and say, this person needs to be confirmed. Can I have, do I have the authority to confirm him? And sometimes the bishop says, no, tell him to wait till I'm there. Yes, bishop. Sometimes the bishop says, sure, I give you that authority. When that happens, I am then the extraordinary minister of confirmation. How many times have you seen me give confirmation? I'll help you. It's been less than five times in the past year because it's extraordinary. It's not supposed to be normative. So in the same way, the principle, when we speak about an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, it should be rare, out of the ordinary. Now, some will say, but, but Vatican II wanted this. No, it didn't. The Council Fathers never asked for this, would not have envisioned extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. In fact, this permission was not given until sometime after Vatican II. Pope Paul VI gave permission in a very important instruction called Immense Caritatis. Why did Pope Paul VI give this permission? Because first of all, it was extraordinary. Because as a priest, my hands had to be consecrated with chrism in order to touch the host. So why would we suddenly now give it to the laity to take out and about? Or why would we allow the laity now to suddenly take the host and so on? Why would the church permit this? The church permitted it in order to assist the homebound and the sick. Pope Paul VI gave this permission so that the homebound could receive communion on a regular basis. In particular, our religious sisters would be able to carry the host to the people that they were ministering to. So the idea of this permission was to help those who were homebound in order to receive nourishment, the spiritual nourishment of the Eucharist. That was the original permission. You can read the instruction. And then there's this one part that says, and if for other reasons, such as advanced age or illness or other pastoral necessities, the pastor is authorized to allow the laity to assist in the distribution of Holy Communion even during the Mass. That's it. That one little permission has been blown up into this massive thing, right? When you go to some parishes, they have like 25 EMs. You know, it's like, whoa, we got two there, two there, two there, two there, two back there. This will be great. You're an EM, you're an EM, you're an EM. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, it doesn't matter whether you live in the Christian way of life. It doesn't matter if you believe in the real presence. It doesn't matter. And, hey, we do this, then we can cut five minutes off the mass. And this is great. What are you doing? What are you doing? Back it up. First of all, we're in no hurry. And then secondly, what did Paul VI say? First of all, those who are appointed must be baptized, 
living faithfully the Christian way of life must also be known to the broader community and must be noted for the Eucharistic piety. I remember when I first came to Our Lady of Grace, I became a monster because all those who, are, who were in irregular marriages, if you're divorced and remarried, you're in a really bad place. And if you're divorced and remarried, you can't be an EM. So that was the first thing I had to address. Oh my goodness, people left the parish, she's so evil and so on. How can you be distributing Holy Communion when you yourself should not even be receiving Holy Communion? Right? So you see, the EM is to be someone noted for the Eucharistic piety and their fidelity to the gospel. So it should be taken very seriously. Do you know many dioceses, including our own until a few years ago, the list of EMs had to be sent to the bishop. In our own diocese, the bishop has now delegated that to the local pastors. But it used to be that the bishop was the one who commissioned the baptized in order to carry the blessed sacrament. Now, with that understanding, I can let you know that we have more EMs than what you probably think. Because you just see the liturgical EMs who are rare. We only do the ones, have the ones that we need. But our vast majority of EMs are actually doing what Pope Paul VI envisioned. Heroic men and women who are carving out time in order to carry the Blessed Sacrament to the sick, the homebound, and the hospitalized. And I thank those who are involved in that ministry here at the parish. That's what permission was for. That was the mind of the church in giving this permission. Incidentally, let me just say this about, homebound, about EMs. When you, someone is appointed an extraordinary ministry of Holy Communion, it was for a set parish and for one year. Every year I have to look at the list of EMs and say, is everyone still in a good place? Do, I have to, do we have to remove some or add some? Every year I have to look and every year the person is reappointed. And they're only appointed for this parish. I can appoint that with the permission of the bishop. And that's important because sometimes we get these people who come and say, hey, Father, can I get three hosts? No, you can buzz off, okay? <laughs> like, who, who do you think? Who, I don't know who you are. Or sometimes they come through the communion line with their picks. Three, uh, no. You think I'm just going to give the host to someone? What is this, drive-through? Right? You're asking me to entrust the body and blood of our Lord. No, I, well, I'm an EM over at this parish. Exactly, you're an EM at that parish and known by that pastor, and you need to go to that parish, right? Because when you're appointed an EM, you're only appointed for a specific community for the duration of one year, and you must be known by the pastor. Dear friends, realize what we're talking about. We're talking about the carrying of the Blessed Sacrament. It is rare that the Blessed Sacrament would ever leave a sacred place. And when it is taken, the church approaches this with grave severity. And we have to make sure that the Blessed Sacrament is safe and that there's no possibility for profanation. Okay, so that's the EMs, helps us to understand. Sometimes we get this question, why do we only have male altar service here at Our Lady of Grace? Well, first, because it's our ancient tradition, but also when female servers were permitted in the 1990s, 1990s, no way anybody can stretch that to Vatican II, right? Oh, some have tried, let me tell you. But in the mid-1990s when it was permitted, it was originally given when there was necessity. In particular, Pope St. John Paul II was thinking about convents, that when a priest went to offer mass and there were no men in the convent, that one of the sisters could get up and serve the altar. So again, a very specific permission was given out of necessity. Listen to what the Vatican instruction says. It will always be very appropriate to follow the noble tradition of having boys serve at the altar. As is well known, this has led to a reassuring development of priestly vocations. Thus, the obligation to support such groups of altar boys must always continue. 
So you see, the permission was given when there was a necessity. But again, what have we done in America? We take this and we just blow it up into something that was never intended. Now here at Our Lady of Grace, we have no necessity for additional servers. There are enough young men who are willing to serve the altar. Sometimes we have many who want to serve the altar. And so we're going to follow the noble tradition of the church and have only men serve the altar. It is also our hope that some who serve the altar might one day be called to a priestly vocation. Okay, here's another question. Why don't we have a communion service on Fridays or other times when the priest is away? So in some parishes, the priest has his day off and then they have a communion service. So first let me clarify, I don't ever have a day off. I'm your spiritual father. There are no days off. I have a day out of the office. And when I'm out of the office and there's no public mass, I can't have a communion service offered. Why? Because a communion service was a very specific permission. It was meant for communities where a priest was not present. So the faithful were bound to come to Sunday Mass or to a holy day of obligation, but no priest was available to offer Mass. So Mother Church said, in those occasions, a communion service can be given. Holy Communion can be distributed to the faithful. And again, it was very specific. Now, I'm grateful for that permission because there are times in which I can't get to the prison. And so a member of the parish, our prison team, goes and they offer a communion service to the prisoners. I'm grateful for that. Or in a nursing home, Someone can go from the congregations involved in those ministries and can offer a communion service. So I'm grateful that we have those options because for those groups, that's their Sunday Mass because they can't be here for Sunday Mass. But to say, well, we're going to use this so that the priest, when he's not here, we can just use this as a stopgap. That's a grave violation of the permission given. That is an abuse. We do not purposely separate the distribution of Holy Communion from the Holy Sacrifice. It is rare when that is permitted and only under these very specific situations. So we look at our sister parishes and are having regular communion service. That is a great offense and completely outside of the mind of the church, which is why here at Our Lady of Grace, we don't offer communion services when they're not necessary. And again, we only offer them here in terms of the prison or care facilities. All right, lastly, here's one question uh, I've received a lot. It's called, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's phrased in different ways, but... Why don't we have the sign of peace here at Our Lady of Grace? Do you know of all the questions relating to the sacred liturgy and all the things that we are trying to get right and make sure we understand, the number one question that I have received from the faithful was about the sign of peace. A supplemental ceremonial to the holy sacrifice. But that has been the number one thing that people were most worried about. It is a supplemental ceremonial. In fact, before the reform, it was simply exchanged by the priest and the deacon and the subdeacon. It was reserved to the altar. You know, there are certain gestures reserved to the altar. You see how I bow, I strike my breast, and so on. There's certain actions that are reserved to the altar. That used to be just reserved to the altar. But that has become the number one. And I argue and present that because I think what happens is that shows where a lot of people are in terms of worship. And a lot of times people don't understand what the sign of peace is supposed to be. The sign of peace is not an opportunity for fellowship or mutual greetings. It is not a gesture of love in that context. The sign of peace is meant as an act of contrition and reconciliation. The Lord Jesus tells us, if you bring your sacrifice to the altar but have hatred in your heart for your brother, go and reconcile with your brother and then come and offer, then present your offerings. The sign of peace was meant that there would be reconciliation. If there should be anything wrong, then we would reconcile with our brothers in order to receive Holy Communion with pure hearts. 
When the sign of peace is properly given, it's simply exchanged to the left and to the right. That's it. The sign of peace isn't supposed to be, oh, this person, that person. Peace, peace, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Peace, peace, peace. You're not running for public office, folks. <laughs> this isn't a love fest. And sometimes we have the Agnes Day being sung, and people are still signing, peace, peace, peace. We're literally saying, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Peace, peace, how you doing? Peace. They can't get the hint. It's over. We've moved on, right? But no, like they keep wanting to go. Right? That's, my, that's my favorite part of Mass. I've heard that. And we have some problems. We have a lot to work on. Because that's a supplemental ceremonial. Your favorite part of the Mass, I would hope, would be the representation of our Lord's crucifixion. The event by which we are saved. And given the possibility of heaven. So we have some work to do. So first, again, we have to understand the sign of peace. Now, in the Reform, when the sign of peace was opened up to the faithful... So it went from the altar to the faithful. Okay. There was no instruction given, which is why it's become this love fest. The faithful were never taught what the sign of peace was supposed to be. And there's arguments among some liturgical theologians that when the sign of peace was given to the entire congregation, that because it was done in this way, that perhaps the sign of peace should have been moved to the penitential rite. That way we could reconcile with God and then we reconcile with one another. Now, that's the opinion of some liturgical theologians. It's an opinion I'm very sympathetic to, but that's above my pay grade. But here's what the church does give me, the authority to have the sign of peace or not. Some of you may not be aware, it's actually an optional supplemental ceremonial left to the celebrant. Here at Our Lady of Grace, I have offered, I have chosen that we not have the sign of peace because I don't have the time to teach you fully what it's supposed to be. We have greater things we need to focus on right now. And I'd rather us not have the love fest because at that moment you're supposed to be preparing to receive Holy Communion. And so before we can restore it, I need to be able to walk through it and give further instruction and clarity in terms of what it's supposed to be. So maybe in the future we can come back and visit the sign of peace. Now with that said, if spouses want to kiss each other or parents want to give a sign of peace to their children, I have no malice towards that. But what I would ask is that you not extend the sign of peace beyond your family. Because the sign of peace has not been offered by the priest. I have not invited you to give the sign of peace. I'm exercising an option given to me by the church. So, and again, why we've done this, I've explained in, in the future, we can perhaps walk through this again. So that's why we don't have the sign of peace. Now, Team Grace, there are a lot more other questions. But I know we don't want to be here till midnight. <laughs> so I appreciate those who reached out. I hope that I've addressed some of the major questions. And the reason why I wanted to do this is in the spirit of our series was for you to know what's going on and why it's happening so that you can more actively and consciously participate in the sacred liturgy. This is the greatest gift given to us. By our baptism, we are able to participate in this. We are able to, able to declare God's sovereignty and be a part of Jesus' sacrifice for our salvation. And I want you to receive every possible grace that God desires to give you through this sacrifice. I hope that it has helped you. Next week, we move to the Feast of Christ the King. At that point, we will be asked to submit our discipleship to our King. So I ask you, use well this last week of ordinary time. Reflect on your understanding of the Eucharist, your belief, your devotion, your love for the Eucharist. Recommit yourself to the Lord and be ready for next week when we all hail Jesus as King.